Welcome. I'm your host, Conrad Chua, on The Balance Sheet, where you can rise above the noise and learn about the most important business issues of our age. Before we get started, if you're new to the show, you can put questions in the comments field, whether you're watching us on LinkedIn, YouTube. You can start by writing down where in the world you're watching this from today. Now, in a previous episode, we looked at how founders such as Elizabeth Holmes, of Theranos and SBF of FTX got all that funding from VCs only to be exposed as frauds. I'll put the link to that episode in the show notes if you want to watch that later. But it does raise the question of whether funding in our free market world is actually effective or efficient. Just as many VCs funded the wrong people, did VCs also reject the right people? In particular, we see that minorities get a much lower proportion of VC funding. To talk about this and other challenges that minority-owned businesses face, we have three research fellows of the Cambridge Centre for Social Innovation. First, Professor Simone Phipps. She's Professor of Management at the School of Business at Middle Georgia State University. So, welcome, Simone. Thank you. Hello, everyone. And Simone co-wrote a book, African-American Management History, Insights on Gaining a Cooperative Advantage, with our next guest, Professor Leon Prieto, who is professor at Clayton State University. Welcome, Leon. Thanks for having me. And lastly, we have Yvonne Lardner, who is an alum of the Masters in Social Innovation program here at Judge Business School. And... She's now a graduate research fellow at the Center for Social Innovation. Hi, Yvonne. Hi, comrade. Thank you so much. Lovely to be here. (laughs) Okay. So why don't we start by talking about what are some of the difficulties that minority-owned businesses face in terms of getting funding? Um, Simone, do you want to start us off? Definitely. A serious challenge when minority-owned businesses want to access funding, whether it's to start a business or just to keep it afloat or to grow the business. Sometimes there is a bias which prevents them from getting access to funding via traditional banks or via venture capital investment funding. And sometimes it's that they are seen as not having sufficient collateral compared to non-minority owners or credit worthiness is seen as not as good or as as poor compared to non-minority owners. So those are some of the, the problems when they are looking for access. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in terms of things like the quality of collateral, etc., um, is this something that is seen when they um, go for debt funding, like approaching banks? Or is that also the same when they go and look at approach venture capitalists for funding? Oh, well, I can say that. Well, I mean, yeah. when you look at the VC investment, um, it's really interesting. So there was research that was done by a company called Extend, which looked at VC investment based on um, ethnicity of founding team members. And the one thing that I liked about this research is that it actually considers seed, early stage and later stage funding. And it found that 90% of the total amount of VC raised went to white entrepreneurs, while only 0.24% went to black entrepreneurs. 
Um, and I think the interesting thing about that data was that when you look at seed, it was 1.9% for black um, entrepreneurs and 87.3% for white counterparts. Early stage was 0.7 compared to 89.8, and later stage was 0.5 compared to 91.8. So not only are they getting a lower investment, they're also, um, as the rounds are progressing, black entrepreneurs are also expressing, they're, they're experiencing less and less access to VC funding as well. Um, so, you know, those are some really interesting interesting numbers that I, that I was able to look at with regards to, you know, how it works in the UK. Um, and the trend is pretty similar in the US yeah, as well. So, for example, in the US, when it comes to VC funding, only 1% of VC investment funding goes to black founders, you know, and everybody else. So that, that is a significant disparity. And they get, because there's less access to funding, the startup costs of black founders are usually less. They have less money. And so mm -hmm. in the U.S., usually it's about 35000 they may have on average to start a business, whereas mm -hmm. white founders have about $107,000 to start a mm -hmm. business. And so they start off with more capital that they can use to build a proper business, make sure you have the right infrastructure, everything. So they have a head start when it comes to that access. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 the same in the UK. So with median turnover, profit making, meeting non-financial aims. Um, and it, it's not to say that other things don't come into play. So education, deprivation, you know, under-representation, systemic barriers, the, these are all contributors as well. But the highest contributor for entrepreneurs is access to finance. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, it means here in the UK that 90% of black entrepreneurs, they just stop working on their business idea. Um, and, it, and it's not just about black entrepreneurs. This is also with regards to just, you know, minority um, ethnic entrepreneurs. So, you know, for Asians, it's actually higher. It's actually 49 percent. Um, and, and there are other nuances. So in the UK, geography comes into play um, in the southeast and the northeast. You, you will tend to do better than you will do in greater London. Um, so, so I think things are mirrored here as well in the UK uh, as they are in the US as well. Yeah, but but you know things are hopeful. You know, um, even though uh, a lot of minority entrepreneurs um, face a lot of problems accessing capital, there are still um, VCs who are fighting a good fight. For example, here in the United States, there's Harlem Capital, mm. and they're striving to um, you know fund a lot of minority entrepreneurs. There's Aperture, and so there are a number of others. But we need more of mm -hmm. those um, venture capitalists serving um, minority groups within the United States and also the UK as well. Mm. Yeah, I mean, in the UK, I know of Impact X. Um, so they're a Black-owned venture capital firm and they've raised 100 million um, pounds and that will support underrepresented entrepreneurs um, within entertainment, media, tech, health and digital in um, industries. Um, but you're absolutely right. When we think about, you know, how we move forward, we actually do need more black investors at larger funds and black investors in senior positions because they're the ones that actually get to write the checks. And, you know, their barriers have to be reduced with regards to their ability to achieve their target fund size as well. Um, and to be able to ring fence these funds specifically to go to underrepresented and you know, minority ethnic groups. Definitely. Definitely. We do need 
more representation because when we have people that are minorities in these venture capital companies, they understand better mm. the challenges that exactly. are faced and they can speak up and advocate before worthy black businesses and other minority owned businesses, which is very important. Yeah. I, if I remember correctly, in the US, only about 4% of the VC workforce are minorities. Mm. So that is a very small percentage mm. that we have in terms of representation. Mm. So if we can increase that representation, it would be very helpful. Absolutely. Yeah. I remember there was a couple of years ago, um, there was an email that went out and all the black employees in VC funds in in London, they all had a meetup and they basically could fit into one corner of a small cafe mm. in London. Mm. Right, yep. and uh, they just counted each other, and they figured there's like one percent of all the people who work in VC were mm -hmm. uh, are black. That was a couple of years ago, so I don't know the, the the more current stats. We can talk a bit about why why you think some of these uh, barriers or biases exist. But let's. I wanted to just uh, have a shout out to some of our viewers. So we've got Sultan from Saudi Arabia. Someone's watching this from Qatar. Uh, Daniel's from Sao Paulo. Someone's in watching uh, from Rome. Widalis is, uh, I guess, in your neck of the woods, um, yes. Simone and Leon in Atlanta. Hi, Widalis. We know Widalis. Oh, you know her? Okay. Uh, Salter's watching from DC and Muhammad's in London. So thank you all for joining. And remember, if you've got any questions, comments, please put them in the, in the chats. Um, yeah. And I think at this point, it's good to maybe look at Yanis. Uh, his comment is that bias is always an issue, especially mm -hmm. when it comes to funding. Mm -hmm. uh, we try to prevent this from happening, but it isn't easy. Do any of you want to start by looking at you know, trying to figure out why these biases arise. Mm. Well, you have, you have stereotypes mm. sometimes, you know, the, the stereotype that this business is not going to be legitimate or credible because it's a minority owned um, business. And so those stereotypes uh, end up coming into play and they're just not given a fair chance. Um, for example, let's take um, with traditional banks. Mm -hmm. When it came to black business owners that requested loans, 47% were approved, but 75% of white owners were approved. So why would that be? Mm -hmm. The only thing is it that all of these white people business founders, they have the better credit, the better idea, etc. Mm -hmm. It's not like that. They're just seen as or perceived as being mm -hmm. more legitimate, more, mm -hmm. more credible. So that is, that is one, one problem. And it's not always intentional bias. Sometimes it is a subconscious bias that is just there in, in the lenders, lenders' minds when they see these applicants come in. Mm. It's an interesting one. Just to add to that, Simone, it's it's in in the UK. It's 
even before they get to the bank, it's it's a, a question of if you even bother to go to the bank to ask for a loan. Mm -hmm. So here, only 13% of Black-owned businesses look to banks for financial support, and they're more likely to take loans from their family or, um, or than they would from a financial service provider. So it's, it's really interesting what happens before you even get to the bank as well. Right. That that's correct over here too. Yeah. A lot of black owned biz owners, business owners, they go to family friends first before they go to the bank. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and there's also bias when it comes to the universities we attend, you know. So some VCs they will go to the Stanford's and the Harvard Business Schools, but they will not pay attention to, you know, the Claflin University or the Mohouse College or Hispanic serving institutions like University of Texas San Antonio. You know, so they're really, um, you know, shooting themselves in the foot by not exploring opportunities, you know, with some of these potential entrepreneurs at some of these minority serving institutions mm -hmm. due to institutional biases, you know, so, so the talent pool is not just at the Ivy League schools. Definitely. I guess the flip side is also, you know, this institutional bias means that uh, they look at someone from Stanford, there's a much lower barrier of, in terms of uh, approving funding, for example. And I just think about Elizabeth Holmes, who went to Stanford, got mm -hmm. George Schultz, who's uh, a research fellow at, at Stanford, to be on the board of the Ranos. Mm -hmm. And somehow all these VCs were just falling over themselves to mm -hmm. give her funding without, even though the, result, the test results were you know, fake or just mm -hmm. not credible. Mm -hmm. So... Is there, do you think that there's ways to try to break this, for want of a better word, old boys network when it comes to people who are giving the funds? Yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. You know, proximity does seem to play a big factor. So, so where you come from or, or where your base can sort of dictate your, your personal network. So access and proximity um, to that access will put you at a disadvantage. Um, and I think the other thing to bear in mind is, is also pattern matching. So, you know, ultimately, VCs are looking for what adds value and what, and what um, adds value at scale. And black founders often come from different circumstances than the average founder or the VC that they might be pitching to. So their views and their, their frame of reference and, and the problems that they're bringing and the solutions that they have in mind they sometimes don't match that typical framework that a VC is thinking of, or you know, based on the decks that a VC sees all the time. So you will, you may have situations where the VC actually believes in the black founder or the believes in the black founding team, um, but doesn't quite understand the unique marketing opportunity or the unique market opportunity that is being presented to them. Um, so unfortunately for those founders, it means that you kind of, you know, you have to start up your business with and try and get to like a minimum um, viable product and your, your product vision with such little funding, you know, it, it's challenging for you right, right from the offset. Um, um. So how you, you break that cycle of that, <laughs> that good old boys club, as we, we call it here, a lot of times you need to focus on raising awareness that there really is a problem in the first place. And uh, you need to have those people who are not just allies, we talk about allyship, but we need authentic allies mm -hmm. who are going to say, you know, these groups of people, minorities are at a disadvantage and it's due to no fault of their own. And there needs to be education and training as 
when it comes to bias and mm. how do we get around this bias so telling them okay you don't only look at the schools mm. that uh, these business on these entrepreneurs are coming from you give everybody uh, a fair chance based on the idea and uh, what they are bringing to the table uh, so education is a very important aspect so that people are aware of their biases and when mm. they are deciding making these decisions about who to give money to they can say okay i'm being biased here i need to give this person a fair shot i think that's part of it and so you need mm. those authentic allies in yeah. the traditional banks and in the vc companies yeah. to be able to promote that kind of equity definitely yeah. and 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 no mentorship is good but we also need sponsors mm -hmm. you know in the sense of um some of these vcs or potential funders to actually open doors and be intentional about it you know yeah. so you know there, there are a number of minority entrepreneurs with mentors but we need to go a step further mm -hmm. and really open these doors via yeah. sponsorship Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's you're right. it's important to make that distinction, Neon. You're absolutely right because ultimately people try and interchange this whole mental sponsor thing without making that distinction. But it's really important to make it because you know a mentor is someone who can give you advice, you can strategize your career moves. Um, whereas a sponsor is a person who advocates for you and they will advocate for you when you yourself are not in the room. And it's important to make that distinction because you know, black founders, particularly black female founders, they they, they tend to be over-mentored and under-sponsored. Right. So, you know, we have to be able to, to understand what the difference is between the two in order to to move forward with this, um, with this idea of sponsorship. Mm -hmm. And just to tie all those things together, the importance of role models, mentors, sponsors, business networks, because all of those are linked when you have mentors, role models, sponsors, then that gives you access in mm. three aspects. Um, increase access to business networks, yeah. which are important for businesses to be able to be started, to survive, and to mm. grow. And so just a, a little bit of information here. In the U.S., only 1.4% of retail businesses were Black-owned. And the owners themselves cited a lack of social capital and networks yeah. that will allow them to invest in important resources like technology, research mm -hmm. and development, innovation, all of which are necessary for the business to be successful. Mm -hmm. So having those sponsors as well as the mentors gives you the access to the business networks that you're going to need or increases your access to those business networks. Yeah. And support, you know, and emotional support Definitely. as well, you know, psychosocial support. It's, it's uh... sure, sure. And, you know, you talk about the um, role of mentors uh, and role models. So I think this is a good time to bring up um, Simone and Leon, your book on African-American management history. Um, can you tell us a bit about why you wrote this book? Because I found that really, you know, the, the reasons for writing was really interesting. Well, one of the reasons we wrote, we wrote this book is... Um, when we reflected on our time attending a historically black college, um, there was hardly any representation in the management textbooks. You know, we didn't learn anything about um, people of color um, managing large enterprises, and we didn't learn about their philosophies and their theories of entrepreneurship and management. So we decided early on, you know what? 
when we get to a certain point in our career, we're going to fill that gap and write a book for students who attended minority serving institutions could see people who look like them, who actually had their own philosophies and theories about how to manage a firm. And we just felt it was time to really introduce a book like this, you know, to those students. Mm-hmm. And I found it really interesting, you know, looking through the book that um, you you brought some, you, you, you had some uh, examples of very successful African-American entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. you know, from the 19th century to the early 20th century. What was quite distinctive about their approach to business uh, was this idea of cooperate, a more cooperative kind of model. Um, Simone, do you want to talk a bit about what is different about that approach? Yes. Uh, so uh, we realized when we looked at what we call the golden age of what is called the golden age of black business, which is between the years of 1900 to 1930, that a lot of these black businesses were able to be successful because of that spirit of cooperation Mm -hmm. that they had. And uh, so the term that we have is cooperative advantage. And what we define it as is the benefits that an organization can possess and accrue due to its people-oriented approach to business. And it uh, is an approach that engenders care and a spirit of care of community that engenders dialogue and consensus building. And these three tenets really help the organization to provide benefits for not just the organization, but for stakeholders, whether it be employees, customers, and the community at large. And so there's reciprocal benefit, there's reciprocity, there's mutual benefit for everyone so that the organizations can be successful Mm -hmm. and they can also make a difference in the community. And we noticed that that spirit of cooperation really helps with success instead of, you know, the unbridled capitalism where you're just trying to make money and not caring about other people. Uh, Mm -hmm. So it was very evident that that spirit of cooperation was among the business leaders and the businesses that we looked at and provided examples of in the book. I'll come back to why that spirit maybe just died after the 1930s. But I wanted to ask Yvonne, do, do you see the same kind of distinctive brand of our approach to business and capitalism from minorities here in the UK? Um, I mean, I think we're starting to, because I think, as I mentioned earlier, we're starting to see people trying to pay more attention with regards to how we can actually ring fence things for black businesses and how we can understand how to better support black businesses. So, you you know, you, you have a lot of... Um, uh, you, you have some of the banks that are trying to ring fest their money specifically for this. You have black VCs now that are trying to do this. Um, and there's more research that's taking place as well. Um, you know, there's someone here in Cambridge Judge that's actually researching um, legitimacy, you know, who gets to be the black entrepreneur. So Olu um, Odubajo, he's doing his master in social innovation here. And he's researching how black entrepreneurs gain legitimacy to achieve investor support. So I think things are starting to move. Um, and 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 rightly so as well because you know one can't overstate the contribution that black business owners actually make here in the UK not just to the economy but actually to society 
Um, so, you know, a quinta report by the Federation of Small Business Black-led Businesses, Black-led businesses contribute as much as 25 billion to the UK economy. This is no small amount. Um, so I think more and more people are trying to understand and pay attention to how they can help black-led businesses um, create value. And for those who are interested to read up on the uh, the book itself, the QR code in the uh, upper right-hand corner, if you scan it, it goes to Amazon, for, to the Amazon link for the book. Um, but Leon, I wanted to turn to you. So Simone said there was this golden age of black capitalism and and with uh, the strong emphasis on the, the being cooperative. Why did that end in the 1930s? Well, um, during that time period, uh, well, close to 1930, the United States experienced the Great Depression. And, um, and some of the businesses within the golden age of black business were also um, cooperatives. They utilized a cooperative business model, even if they weren't um, officially cooperative, they operated as such. And many of those businesses faced prejudice, you know, from um, some white supremacists who accused them of being, you know, communist or un-American by practicing um, so much cooperatism, you know. So, so in the quest to become good capitalists, many African-Americans um, walked away from this spirit of cooperation and embraced unbridled capitalism because they wanted to be seen as American. And once they did that, they came up against the, the barriers that we talked about, this sort of institutional barriers and biases. Is that right? Exactly. You know, so, so we're advocating for... Um, minority entrepreneurs to adopt that spirit of cooperation. And because look where unbridled capitalism has gotten us. You know, we are faced, we are living in a world faced with racial disparities, um, biodiversity crisis, climate crisis. In fact, there's a poly crisis. You know, that's the term being used a lot these days. And that's where unbridled capitalism has gotten us. So by utilizing an, an approach focused so deep-rooted in cooperation, we could envision a different type of economy, you know, mm. a more regenerative one, mm. one that stands with solidarity and social justice being part of the ideals that we really need, you know. And capitalism, yes, um, has some reforming to do. And once we incorporate some of these values I just talked about, like cooperation and solidarity, social justice, I think we will be in a, be a much better place. And I also think in addition to the Black-owned businesses adopting the spirit of cooperation, I think all businesses need mm -hmm. to adapt that uh, idea of cooperation and adopt uh, these tenets of spirit of care and community and dialogue and consistent mm -hmm. consensus building because if you think about it, if the traditional banks, as well as the venture capitalist companies, as well as educational institutions, as well as governmental agencies and the policymakers adopt that kind of mentality where they care about everyone, not just themselves, 
then there will be more programs and more initiatives to help those who may be struggling in different areas due to bias and discrimination. Mm. I mean, a lot of the uh, this rentier capitalism, right, that, that, that we've seen in the last uh, five, ten years from Silicon Valley, uh, it's very much about let's see how, how much money can be extracted from the economy, right? And whether it's something like Uber, right? Which basically you're trying to get as much money out of uh, people who used to drive or mm -hmm. delivery and stuff like that. And these, there was such a big, uh, lots of money poured in because there was this idea that these things can scale so quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what you've been talking about was quite different in terms of that cooperative model, in terms of looking at social justice. Can, what kind of businesses areas do you think those would be be in? Uh, other, you know, they're, they're not going to be they're going to be quite different from those. We're going to get a billion users. Right? Mm. So, what kind of businesses would be uh, that this more uh, socially just and fair type of model? Well, you know, we got B Corps. Mm -hmm. B Corps. I like that business model. Um, especially those companies that are authentic mm. with their mission. Um, but recently I read a scathing article that criticized some companies that I guess they were implying that they were pretending to be socially driven when in fact they were more extractive in nature and not truly B Corps, you know? But B Corps that really strive to be really socially driven has a has a has a potential to really make a difference mm -hmm. but we can't take away the responsibility of regular com corporations as well uh, to, mm -hmm. to try and have some kind of social purpose and even yeah. to be fair in terms of their business dealings you know yeah. and I, I don't really want to pick on a particular industry but let's say for example the the chocolate industry, you know, mm -hmm. people make so much money making chocolate, millions of dollars, and they, they have so the executives get such high salaries, but the poor farmers who are picking cocoa can barely mm -hmm. make a living wage or not make a living wage at all. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, corporations have a responsibility to adopt that spirit of, of care and to mm -hmm. think about others you know other countries the global the global community and not just their mm -hmm. pockets mm -hmm. absolutely yeah, go, go ahead Yvonne. no i just i totally agree and I, I think it's something that has to be written into your governance you know I, i've worked with companies that have it written into their bylaws um so as you said leon yeah b corps are absolutely amazing um but you know triple bottom line it's it's the people it's the planet it's the prosperity this is something that people have to now make become you know, the fabric embedded into your actual organization. And I think the only way that you can really do it effectively is to have it, you know, as part of your corporate governance. Yeah, and I agree that point with the corporate governance. And we need a lot of corporations to really think deeply about having um, minorities on the corporate board, mm -hmm. you know, especially mm -hmm. those who are passionate and socially driven, mm -hmm. who is going to challenge the other board members to do the right thing. And it could also help with uh, diversifying their global supply chain as well and provide opportunities for minority entrepreneurs. Absolutely. You know, so that's needed. 
Yeah, so it's really interesting, Leon, you, you mentioned this thing about supply chains because Osman's question is, uh, if we need a new economic model, right, would a circular economy type of model help minority-owned businesses? I think so. And, um, well, here in the U.S., we've seen a greater um, push and a greater emphasis on environmental justice, social mm-hmm. justice, and a number of minority entrepreneurs have a deep passion for sustainability. Mm-hmm. And, and and companies are really thinking about their supply chains and how to have a more circular economy, and in some cases, a more regenerative economy as well. So by having minority entrepreneurs who are passionate about that, um, they can definitely play a major role with a circular economy or a regenerative economy if they are part of that supply chain. Because a number of um, communities where minorities reside, they face a lot of um, environmental harm you know, a lot of environmental injustices. So there's that inherent passion for um, starting more sustainable businesses, especially those that focus on a circular economy. Yeah, and I think there's a recent um, FT article in the Financial Times about the circular economy, about fashion especially, and how we in the West, we give our clothes, you know, use yeah. clothes, all clothes to a recycling center, but, and we think we're doing a good deed, but actually a lot of it just goes to places like Ghana, the Philippines, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. the people there have to deal with the, all that waste. Obviously mm-hmm. they try to resell some things, but a lot of times they, they don't, they can't, mm-hmm. and they mm-hmm. have to live with the waste that comes up from the West. And I think this idea of getting more minority voices into a business will really help close that circle and let businesses think actually how are we really are we just throwing things out sweeping things under the carpet almost isn't it definitely Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah. sorry Leon go ahead I was going to say um yeah businesses have a responsibility but we also need strong public policy as well Mm -hmm. So politicians have to do their part as well, you know, to to really aid in really creating the circular economy that is needed, you know. So I'm not a big fan of too many sticks, you know. So we need some carrots, but a couple, but at least you know, wave a big stick once in a while, you know, for companies to do the right thing. But more carrots are needed. Yeah. yeah. So I I think the last. We could spend the last 10 minutes thinking about um, if you are a CEO of a company, you want to bring in more minority voices, more minority people into your company, into senior management and leadership. What do you think, what would your advice be to people in, that, in, the, in the C-suite who want to do this? An important step would be to build and nurture relationships with universities, with historically black colleges and universities, and also to have programs with predominantly white institutions because there are minority students at predominantly white institutions and those institutions need to have 
programs where they connect these black budding entrepreneurs or those who intend to be entrepreneurs with uh, business leaders in companies uh, so that uh, you can have that connection and provide these students with access mm. to the opportunities, whether it be via internships or career opportunities upon graduation. Uh, so building a pipeline from <laughs> university to, to business, the business world upon graduation is a, is a good step. Mm. Yeah, yeah the pipeline is needed also not just at universities as well, but vocational um, centers and mm -hmm. also corporations could play a role as well by offering, you know, discounted certification programs in areas such as machine learning, artificial intelligence, and um, another, another areas as well where there's a high demand, mm -hmm. you know, so provide different pathways for different minority groups who want to one day utilize um, what they've learned into creating a, their own enterprise. Mm -hmm. I also think you have to think about what their experience is going to be in your organization. So I think a lot of organizations will, will talk about diversity as your, as your question alluded to, Conrad. But ultimately, what happens when you actually get into that organization? So, you know, a, a lot of minorities, they, they struggle where they're, when they're on the entrepreneurial path or when they're in the organizational structure, because that idea of inclusion and belonging suddenly sort of starts to um, just, just sort of starts to float away. So I think a lot of organizations, CEOs, um, VCs, they also have to really think about what that assimilation journey is like for people who are coming from, you know, um, minoritized backgrounds as well. And I think that's also really important, especially, Leon, you were talking about these new growing areas such as AI and machine learning, because uh, for my, a lot of minorities, it's important for them to see that there is a pathway for them in these sort of areas, because these are the areas that will be growing. And these are the areas that get, will get a lot of funding if they choose mm -hmm. to start a business, for example. So I think that, that part is really quite important. Just wanted to ask, have you seen um, companies that are doing this well? Well, yeah. I have to give a shout out to, go ahead, Yvonne, you go ahead. No, I was going to say, Leon, you mentioned earlier B Corps, you know, B Corps, they're, they're held to a standard. So, you know, there are definitely companies out there that are doing it well, companies out there that can, that can measure their impact. Um, you know, I'm consulting for a company at the moment, Nature and Co. Like, you know, ESG is, is built into their bylaws, um, and you know, it, it, it's they, they think about it when when they think about profit and loss from an integrated perspective. So it's 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 about people, purpose, planet. So I definitely think that there are companies out there that are that are doing it well. It's it's not all it's not all bad, um, and I definitely think there's an opportunity for the companies that who are doing it well to try and you know, show other people what it is that they're doing. So it is about that cooperative, it's about that coalition, it's about that collaboration. Um, so that they can also teach other companies because, you know, smaller companies, they may not have the resources to do this as well as bigger companies can. That is another issue. So it's one thing wanting to do it, but it's another thing with regards to, you know, can you do it? Do you have the resources? Do you have the knowledge? Mm -hmm. um, so, so yes, there are people doing it well, but they also need to make sure that they are sharing how they are doing it with others. 
There's a company that I'm very fond of in the U.S. as well, and it's in the chocolate industry. It's Askinosi Chocolate. And the founder actually has a business model where he has a, a personal relationship with the farmers in different countries like Tanzania, Ecuador, mm -hmm. in the Philippines. Yeah. And so he travels to them and they have a conversation. He shows them the books and there's a fair wage that they get based on sharing mm -hmm. profits, you know, mm -hmm. and he shows them how their cocoa actually contributed to the, his bottom line and make sure they understand and uh, things mm -hmm. like that. And uh, so if we have more companies that think about the supply chain and who they are dealing with, who the suppliers mm. are, what their circumstances are, and how they can be more fair and equitable to them. Because it's because of the suppliers that they're able to make, you know, good money. Mm. Uh, so if you have more companies that think about things like that, we'd be in a better okay. place. And I'll what give was a the shot. company called? Sorry, what was the company called again? Asking OC. Asking OC Chocolate. Yes. Okay. The, the founder's name is Sean Asking OC. Oh, mm -hmm. right. Yeah. Yeah, and Leon. Yeah. Yeah, and the company I wanted to shout out was um, Vista Equity Partners, uh, and the founder of that company is Robert F. Smith, and he's the wealthiest African-American. Um, he's a billionaire, and he's very intentional with um, helping minority-serving institutions, so he's invested a, you know, a lot of um, his resources in you know, teaching minorities how to invest mm -hmm. and providing a lot of scholarships. He even spent $34 million out of his own money to pay for the tuition of graduating seniors at Morehouse College, which is the only black male university mm -hmm. in the United States. So he's putting um, his money where his mouth is, you know. So pretty much if you have more minority entrepreneurs, they're going to come back and really make a difference in the community because all of them went through the struggles themselves. So they have a vested interest in really making that difference where it matters. Yeah. Um, I think for me, it would be, as I mentioned them earlier, Impact X um, Capital Partners. They're a Black-owned venture capital um, firm, and um, they've already raised $131 million to support underrepresented entrepreneurs. Um, and, and so I, I think they're doing great, great things in, in, in the UK. Mm. And I thought we could end off with this comments from Saswati, who says, as a new entrepreneur, she's trying to put together a good governance system uh, to focus on providing internships to minority and less represented groups. So Saswati, thank you for that comment. If you could put in a bit more information about actually what are you doing mm. in terms of that, what's your idea, what are you putting in place in terms of governance, that'd be great. But, you know, Simone, Leon, or, or Yvonne, what do you have any suggestions for Saswati and others who are trying to provide internships to minority groups? I I would say to connect connect with with the universities mm. and um because you can get access here. That that is some easy access, but also to organizations in the community that serve minority. Um, uh, individuals and students, you know, like after school programs, etc. And uh, just a simple thing that we don't think about sometimes when we think of entrepreneurial knowledge and skills, mm -hmm. something basic as uh, simple financial 
understanding, like financial mm -hmm. literacy, because it has been shown that entrepreneurs do better when they have that. And mm -hmm. uh, usually Blacks are behind whites when it comes to financial literacy. You know, I saw a survey where 38% of Blacks got answers right on a particular financial literacy test, whereas 55% of whites got it right. Uh, mm -hmm. So even having a program like that where there's mm -hmm. financial literacy with then builds into that credit worthiness that helps as well as entrepreneurs want to gain there. Uh, so that helps with entrepreneurships as well, if you build and that also, into programs. And also try to get input from the, the people they're trying to serve, the students themselves, and ensure that they're not just um, fixing coffee for their, <laughs> for their managers, you know, because, you know, I've had internships in the past where I had to speak up to pretty much demand um, the opportunity to actually learn something meaningful. You know, I was told by my mentors being too forward with that, but, you know, I was, you know, focused on my development. So let's mm -hmm. ensure that um, they're also stakeholders in developing this program. Mm -hmm. okay. Very true. Yes, and I think Saswati says she's, yes, she's partnering with some universities and designing financial wellness interventions. So mm. that's, that's really yeah. great stuff. Good, good. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Simone, Yvonne, and Leon, mm. for sharing you know, your experiences, your thoughts about how minority-owned businesses can get ahead. Uh, it's been wonderful, and I hope that everybody who's watching, you can share, that, share this recording after that with, with other mm. people who, could, uh, be, who are in a position to do something that can help minority-owned businesses. It's not just um, helping minorities because it's a good thing. It is a good thing, of course, but it also makes business sense. So I hope people can, can, can take that away. Uh, and thank you once again to all, all three of our, our speakers. Now, thank you for the invitation. Thank you. Yeah. So the live stream, the balance sheet, is we're going to take a break for Easter, but we've got a huge lineup when, already when we return. We're going to look at MBA career outcomes, issues like the circular economy, which we talked a bit about today, um, global geopolitics, lots yeah. more. And we'll be back on the 21st of April at our usual time of 12.45 p.m. UK time, where we'll be looking at the big kahuna of 2023. How are we going to work with AI? So stay well and um, see, you, see you next time.